But the trademark rights are absolutely stronger. So for anybody that is not obtaining the trademark rights but sitting there just hoping that the business name is enough, it, it, they're not protected well enough. You are listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to grow your firm. Welcome to episode 287 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. Over the next two episodes, let's look at intellectual property and how it is taxed. Today, Melissa McGrath of Coleman Greg Lawyers in Sydney will talk about patents, trademarks, copyrights and registered designs. And in the next episode, we will focus on the taxation of those rights and assets. with the realm of the subject matter that we're trying to tax. So we're talking about intellectual property and, you know, people often, I think, misunderstand what intellectual property is. So I just wanted to take a step back and talk about that. So if we can say, and I don't know if you want to marry this up with the slides somehow, but I'll follow you as we go. I think it's important that you start with the idea that a lot of businesses will say to me, oh, IP is not really important to us. Or people will say, my client doesn't have IP in its business. and I'd just like everybody to appreciate that that must be fundamentally wrong because intellectual property is very much about creating competitive advantage through assets or through creating circumstances where you alone are allowed to do something. And importantly, the way that that flows on is to the reputation of your client. So if your client has no IP, that means it must not have a name and it must have no reputation. So I often think it's an interesting thing when people say that to me and then I start to say, well, let's ask some questions about your client because actually perhaps you don't really understand what the client does. Is it fair to say that every business has IP? Absolutely. Every company, every business must have intellectual property because intellectual property is not just what we understand to be the legislative regime, if you like. So we've got a Trademarks Act and we've got a, a Copyright Act and a Patents Act and a Designs Act. And that's by and large, they're the, the four pillars of intellectual property as far as the legislation is concerned. But sitting aside that is, of course, there's, there's common law and What is really important, I think, is confidential information. And people forget, because confidential information is often treated as something different, because maybe that doesn't fall within the definitions within the legislation for intellectual property, it nonetheless is part of the intellectual capital of the business. And so, you know, for example, a trade secret is the antithesis of a patent, right? Legislation says we can have a patent for things that are functional. And I'll take a step back and just distill down what the differences are, I suppose. But if we're talking about a patent, you're talking about the function of something. But that means that you get the monopoly right to be the only person who's allowed to make, sell and hire, and there's a longer definition of that, of that particular product for a particular period of time, if you tell the community what your invention is. The antithesis of that is having a trade secret, which is, you know, what people would more so know, like the Coca-Cola recipe or KFC's 11 herbs and spices. They're things that are kept as confidential information. They're an asset of the business and they're never disclosed. So I think when people talk about intellectual property, they think, oh, well, I don't have inventions. But nonetheless, you will be either licensing somebody else's invention 
if you don't, if you create your own, you might be out licensing it to somebody else. You've definitely got a name that's got a reputation and should either be trademarked or is otherwise worth protecting. And then you've got other just intellectual capital or confidential information, know-how, get up, that's all in your business that is all extremely important and part of what is um, intellectual property. You just mentioned that there are four types of intellectual property, trademark, patent and copyright. What was the fourth one? Designs. Ah, designs. You can register designs. You can. And you had a good question for me around copyright. So let's just break them down for a second. So trademarks, I think most people are very comfortable with because we see them all the time as good little capitalist consumers, I suppose. We know that's the name of the good That, or the or the service that we're buying. Yes, and trademarks are also relatively easy to register. Yeah, they are, provided that they're unique. So if something is just a description of what you're doing, then you probably won't get a registered trademark for that in as a plain word because uh, other traders in, in your industry need to be able to use that just in order to function. So you shouldn't be given a monopoly right to use those words. But if you've got something that is distinct, like Qantas, Well, no other airline needs to use Qantas in explaining what its goods and services are. So that, that's fair enough to be a good registrable trademark. But don't forget that you can have common law trademarks. So there might be things that are a little bit more descriptive and don't really fit within the legislative regime. But over time, you've used it and used it and used it. And we can show on evidence that the community has come to understand that that name is indicative of where those goods or services come from. And so if you can show that sort of reputation, often you can get a registered trademark for something that might be a little bit descriptive. Now, suppose we're jumping ahead there. We want to talk about a trademark can be a shape, it can be a colour, it can be a noise, or it can be a plain word, or it can be a logo or a stylized word. So I think we all know that the, there's a stylized version of the Coca-Cola wording, so that, that's what you might call a stylized version. Otherwise, you would apply, if you're going for a registered trademark, you would apply for a plain word mark because if you are granted that as a registered trademark, you're entitled to use that in whichever style you like. Whereas if you apply for a stylized version of your trademark, then that is the limit to which your protection and your, uh, yeah, your protection can be utilized. So Well, more to the point, you can't enforce it against somebody else if they are using a different style, even if it's really the same word, right? Because your protection is, is limited to that style. So that the first, I'd say that trademarks are in two pieces. You've got the word or the, the shape or whatever it is, and then you've got the scope of what the protection is. So it's got to be registered or have a reputation in relation to goods and services of a particular class. You know, I think there was a lot of talk when I was doing Cadbury's uh, purple trademark and the team that I was in was working on that, there was a little bit of buzz about the idea that Cadbury would own purple. And that's not the case. Cadbury was applying for the colour purple in relation to things like chocolate bars. That's not going to stop somebody putting it on a bottle of wine. You know, they're, they're, they're different goods than, or using it in an airline. They're, they're quite different things. So that's entirely appropriate but what you have to do is you have to say to the trademarks office this is my trademark and this is the scope of the monopoly that I want you to give mm -hmm. me remembering that we live in a free trade sort of society and monopolies are not okay that's why 
the four pillars of intellectual property legislation are the four monopoly rights that you can be given and you get those four competitive advantage. So that's trademarks. In relation to then uh, for things that are functional, trademarks are names, shapes, noises, things that are functional and the way things work are protected by way of patent. The patenting process is such that you must not disclose all the features of your product or your invention before you launch to market. And the reason for that is that one of the requirements of having for obtaining a patent is that it must be new. So if you are going and having meetings with people, um, perhaps to get new customers for this product, you might find yourself in a position where you have what we term pre-published yourself. That is that you've disclosed all of your features first. Or for example, um, there are people at the moment who are making innovative or, or inventive inventions and they might well uh, post a picture of it on Instagram. If that is something that discloses all of the features of your product, then you might find yourself in a position where you can't obtain a patent that's going to be held valid. So it's really important that with patenting, you do not disclose all of your features before you've put in your patent application, if that's what you want. Correct me if I'm wrong, but my gut feeling is trademarks, copyright, possibly designs. They're for the small guys as much as the big guys. But I think patent is a huge hurdle for small to medium business. And for one reason, A, I think it's really difficult to register a patent without involving patent lawyers, whereas you can, usually if your trademark is unique enough, you can register your trademark for a few hundred dollars yourself. What I've observed, you really need a patent lawyer to have any chance of getting the patent through. So that's already a high cost hurdle for small to medium business. And I remember seeing a family on Shark Tank who had spent $200,000 on an invention regarding some fishing gear and had never tested the market. And that leads me to the next problem. If you're not allowed to publish and test the market before you apply for the patent, you don't know whether the product will actually even sell. So you go through all these costs, possibly hundreds of thousands of dollars to register the patent, and you've actually never tested the market. No, you're, you're spot on. With trademarks, it is very simple. You can go into the uh, into IP Australia and you can lodge your own trademark application for as little as $250. It then goes through a process of being uh, examined by an examiner. Provided you've got something unique and distinctive, it should go through that with no concerns. Uh, it's then open to the public for a number of months so that any third party who's got a uh, doesn't want you to have that registration can what we call oppose. And if there's no opposition, then it goes through to registration. And, you know, you're sort of talking about maybe 15 months. With a patent, I agree with you. Unfortunately, we have had up until, well, it's about to die. We've had a two-tiered patent system in Australia up until now. So we have what is called a standard patent, which lasts, the term of it is 20 years from your priority date. The priority date is the date of filing. It is, you know, between five and $10,000 to get a, an application filed and that is drafted by a patent attorney. And I just want to make one note there that there are patent lawyers and there are patent attorneys. And sometimes those things are not the same. I am a patent lawyer. That means I'm a lawyer with experience in patent litigation and I have a biochemistry degree. So I'm evidently okay with scientific terms and, and um, related issues. Patent attorneys may or may not be a lawyer. 
patent attorneys can obtain their registration as an attorney, having conducted um, a number of classes at um, typically university level. Some people will do it through a master's course, but there are particular classes that they need to do around validity and drafting. And then they are specifically allowed to draft applications. And they are also allowed to represent you in front of IP Australia, as is uh, a lawyer. We're allowed to appear before IP Australia. The other difference with attorneys, though, is in addition to drafting, so they have the, the speciality of drafting, but they're not allowed to uh, appear in court. So if they are not a patent attorney and patent lawyer, you will find yourself in need of a lawyer at that point as well. Is this setup that you actually have patent lawyers and patent attorneys, is that unique for patents? Because I don't think I've, you know, we don't have a family law attorney or a commercial law attorney anything else. So it seems to be quite unique for patents. And I can imagine it is set up like this because patents require a high level of technical skills and knowledge. And hence having this pathway of patent attorneys allows people with technical degrees, engineering, biochemist, science, etc., allows those to come into the patent area without having to go through a law degree. Yeah, that's exactly right. And they've certainly got a great benefit to give, especially people who have been conducting PhD research or, or beyond that. Um, they can certainly come to the, the technical issues with a much better grasp of what needs to be disclosed in the patent application than somebody like me who's not got that level of research. Medical industry, for example, pharmaceutical industry probably would have quite a few patent attorneys who are highly specialized in pharmacy and medicine, etc., for example. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, so I just want to deal with the fact that, yes, you've got, um, you've got to be able to communicate what is the technical skill to IP Australia, and more importantly, uh, through the body of the patent application that's got to be drafted. So somebody who understands the technical capability or the technical issues will be able to do that much better. And then when you come, though, to a court situation, of course, you've got to have lawyers that understand the technical side of it, but also be able to explain that in plain language to the court. And it is important for us to realise that we don't have a specialist patents or IP, you know, we do have a, um, a specialist stream in the federal court to deal with intellectual property, but it's not the same as in Europe where you have a number of judges who, for example, have chemistry degrees and so forth, who, who actually have that technical capability. So there is a real art, I think, to explaining what can be very detailed technical subject matter to, to the court who maybe doesn't have that background and certainly doesn't live with cases for the same period of time that lawyers do, you know, you might be preparing a case for a couple of years and get the chance to be across a lot of the information uh, and a lot of the detail, whereas the poor judge has the hearing time really to get across the, the true issues. So they're, they're, that's very important. But when you mention court now, the court only appears when there's a dispute, correct? So the first re the first registration of the patent probably doesn't involve a court. And that's probably also then where the patent attorney has their main role that they help to register the patent. But when then there is a dispute, then of course, you and you are going to court, then of course, you need a patent lawyer who Uh, handles the court proceedings. Yeah, that's right. And they might work with your patent attorney or, or you know, however you wish them to work. But you're quite right. IP Australia, you could have your attorney represent you or you could have a lawyer. The examiners and the hearing officers at IP Australia are 
typically technically trained. So it, that is a, a difference in the, the forums. And of course, then there's, there's no rules of evidence um, to the same level at IP Australia. I, I never had a client or have heard of somebody having a client who registers a Patent. And I wonder whether that's because I live in the small to medium business world and not in the big business world. And hence, I've never come across patent issues. It may be. It depends on how important it is to the business. Certainly, patenting takes longer and is more expensive. And I'm sorry, the point I was going to make before is that we've had this two-tiered system. So the second tier was what was is known as an innovation patent. And it's a patent application that I think is far more useful to the SME community, if you like, than a standard patent. And it's certainly much more accessible from a, a cost point of view. It's only a few thousand dollars to apply for. It typically is examined and potentially granted within you know, about three months. There is emanation piece and then there is an opposition that it needs to go through. But unfortunately, Australia's Productivity Commission decided a couple of years ago that that tier wasn't worth continuing. And so if anybody's interested in a, an eight-year patent, they should get in before the 21st of August and uh, get their applications filed because after that time, they will not be able to be offered. But in relation to your question, that, that is really where mm -hmm. the smaller um, businesses should be looking at protecting their investment. And what happens when we don't have that tier? I, I agree with you. It it makes patents a little less accessible for the, the smaller businesses. What's the second tier that expires on the 21st of August 2021? What is that called again, that, that second pathway? That's an innovation patent. Oh, I see, innovation patent, yeah. It's called an innovation patent. And the real difference yeah. between that and a standard patent, they, still, they both have requirements of being new, but an, a standard patent requires an inventive step, whereas the innovation patent requires an innovative step and there's legal tests for understanding what the differences are but we don't really need to get into that today the other thing i just wanted to make a point to you is that you you raise the issue of this being specific to patents actually there is also a system of trademark attorneys and they go through i'm a registered trademark attorney as well having done a number of classes through my master's degree those people uh, have a, a similar route the technical qualification doesn't necessarily come into it but um, as in having done research and so forth but there are people who specialize in in being uh, a registered trademark attorney there's something called a provisional application for a patent and where it happens very early on so you would you can file a provisional application you can get your priority date And thereafter, you can disclose your, your features. But more importantly, it gives an entity or, or a person 12 months to kind of do more experimentation on what it is that they think is their invention. And then within 12 months, they need to file what's known as a complete application. So the difference between a provisional and a complete application is that the provisional application will not have any claims to it. A, a Complete application will have uh, an explanation at the front of the field of industry that the invention is to be applied to. Sometimes it will have, this is a problem in the industry and here's basically what our solution is. And then right at the end, you have the scope of what is protected by this patent. And it might say, uh, this, this patent protects a vehicle with two wheels that is red. And so therefore that means that if I go and make 
a vehicle with three wheels that is blue, I'm not infringing the pattern. But of course, if I do start making a, a two-wheel red version, then I'm falling within the claims of the patent. And that is the area where we look at infringement of a patent. So you could go into your hypothetical I would be saying file your provisional, do your market testing, do your continued experimentation. And then within that 12-month period, you make a decision about whether you go into a complete application and, and the further costs that come with that. That's how you would overcome those issues. The provisional application is the solution to our problem. We launch a provisional application, then we test the market, and then we see whether we should go ahead or not. The other thing you can do, of course, is you can bind people to confidentiality. So there's a little gray area to this. So I don't want to say it's a, a full, full uh, solution to what you say, but typically if, if you wanted to um, work out whether your uh, someone could manufacture your invented product, for example, you would have them sign an NDA and then The, the disclosure would be within the realm of confidence so that it wasn't going to be disclosed and be part of the public information that could then be used against you. Yes, an NDA would protect your patent application. The patent office could then not say it's already out there, it's no longer new because it came through an NDA. There should be nobody that is available to give evidence to show the prior disclosure, right? Because they would be bound by the duty that they owe you uh, contractually. So unless they're going to breach that, then um, that should cure the, the problem, as long as the NDA is properly drafted, et cetera. And that's why I say, I think it's a solution, but you have to be careful with it. Did that cover that off? I think you asked about copyright. Copyright subsists in, I think most people are aware, literary and artistic works and so forth. It arises on creation and provided that the person that that it's created by a human, not just by a computer and a citizenry of, of the conventions, then essentially uh, if it's an original work, then copyright should arise on creation. So you don't need to go and register it somewhere, but there are a couple of practical tricks that you need to be really aware of when advising clients about copyright. You'll Everybody will be aware, well aware of the C inside the circle, which means this work is copyright. The way that that should typically be treated is the copyright symbol, the year of creation, and the entity that owns the copyright, right? Sometimes that's followed up with all rights reserved. And the reason for that is kind of historical. It's not really required anymore now that there are so many countries that are participating in the international treaties that deal with copyright. But it doesn't hurt to have all rights reserved. And you'll see most American entities, and I often advise people that have America as a, a key market to use all rights reserved uh, so that it's clear that there's no way that any of these rights that sit with copyright are given away. And you need to do that because of the, I guess, the vague idea of what is the copyright work, right? With, with trademarks, particularly those that are registered or with patents, it's very clear, really, what is the subject matter? But unless you've kind of got a book, what are we talking about is the copyright work, really? Um, that's something that you, you would come to and, and you really do need to, especially if you are licensing copyright, because it's you know, not identified by a number the way that a patent or a trademark is. You have to identify very specifically and clearly what is the copyright work that's being licensed? And that can be done contractually. Oh, I see. Okay, so licensing copyrights doesn't mean you go to IP Australia because you can't register it. Licensing copyrights just means you give somebody else the right to use your creative work. Yeah. 
That's right. And I mean, I'm, I'm speaking loosely here because there are so many different copyrights. In particular, something that's important is to know that there is something called moral rights. So, uh, and they're, they're not waived. So it's, it's a right of attribution of creating a work. It's a right not to have your work messed with so that it, it doesn't achieve what you want it to achieve or, or to make it, a lot of people say to make it ugly because it often arises in architectural scenarios where somebody comes along and changes a building. It's more easily identified as an, a right of attribution. So those rights also arise. Coming back to the C symbol and then the year of creation and the name of the entity who owns the copyright, how do you do this on a website with blog posts where the blog posts are continuously updated or new blog posts are added should you have the year of creation as the current year so for example 2021 now or should you have the year of creation for the first blog post that is written or do you need a separate symbol for each blog post to clarify when it was created i think that the the latter of that becomes too cumbersome and you'll see different companies try to deal with this in different ways so typically people will just have the current year and so the the web page for each year will then have its its correct designation. If you look at, um, I think probably if you look at Nike's webpage or uh, the larger um, bodies webpage, sometimes they'll have copyright 1996 to 2002 or to 2020 Nike Inc. So you can do it that way as well. Oh yeah, okay, that's that's clever. Because otherwise, if you just have an old year there, it, looks, it makes your website look outdated. Like if you look up at a website and it says, you know, the C and then... 2018, it looks like the website hasn't had any work on it since 2018. <laughs> That's right. And if you think of it from the other end, so if you come at it from a litigator's perspective, okay, I want to prove that somebody has uh, infringed the copyright in this work. What's the work and when was it created? They're the things that you typically want to be able to identify from the work itself. So it is about keeping it up to date, but each little blog post, I, I would say, is probably just too cumbersome to try and specifically identify in terms of year. So I think copyright is very different to trademark and patents in that you can't register it. So in a way that might be perceived as a minus, but for that, to make up for that, it is created at the moment of creation. So you don't have to do anything. You immediately have at the moment you put two, two words together, you basically have a copyright to, to those scribbles. Provided that those two words are an original literary work. But yes, you're, you're right. I mean, it, it doesn't cost you anything to start copyright and enforcement and being very clear and managing it properly. I mean, I must say there is a registration process in the US, but it's not It's not the same as the uh, registration process for trademarks and patents. It doesn't operate in the same way. Mm. And just thinking of accountants now, I mean, the, most of the content we create are blog posts about certain problems our clients or we face. And so blog posts, I think, are very difficult to protect. So if somebody else copied our blog post or our technical writing and then we found it and raised it as an issue, it would be very easy for them to just rewrite it, to use the technical knowledge that's in this blog post, but just rewrite write it use slightly different words i agree with that um in terms of infringement of copyright it's got to be an infringement of the material part of the work or a substantive part of the work and what that means is a lot of people talk about the 10 rule with copyright i would prefer people not to try and think about that it's think about what is the work and what's the really important piece of it and if you're taking a piece from somewhere it probably has some value and you should think about why you want to use it um, you know because 
if you look at a lot of the, there's, I mean, music is very topical at the moment. It's very hard to know what might be a copyright infringement of lyrics or composition at the moment because there are only so many notes and, and typically musicians have built on the ideas of others over the years. But we're starting to see people use um, copyright law as a way of, of creating competitive advantage for themselves now or, or for people to maybe get the royalties that they should otherwise have been deserved but they didn't have a big enough profile to get that song out into the market. But um, the point is, by way of example, a number of years ago I was acting for a client who had painted this beautiful work. I think it was a, a metre by a metre. It wasn't a huge painting. But somebody uh, saw that hanging in a gallery and then decided to make a rug out of it and took the what I would call the seminal piece of the painting, and that was the rug. So from that, you can see it wasn't 10% of the one metre by one metre. It was the really important part of the painting that was then used for the rug. And that's a difficult example because there's a whole lot of law about taking 2D things to make 3D things. But mm. but the point being that it doesn't, you know, it's not if you've got a 100-page book and you only take nine pages, you're not infringing copyright. That's That's not right. If those nine pages are the most important part of the book, then yes, you'll find yourself in a difficult position. But I think for accountants, it's really difficult to protect their copyright because when we write about something, it's usually an understanding of tax law or accounting rules, etc. Let's take as an example the cash flow boost that came out about not far away from this time last year. When you write about how it works, even though you might have a particular good way of writing about it or you might add some insights because you read the um, explanatory memorandum or other things, it's really hard to protect that because it's not something unique. You just spend a lot of time reading reading a publication and concising it into something shorter and more understandable. But I think it's easier for authors who write fiction stories or non-fiction stories. But I think for us as accountants, it's really difficult to copyright anything. Possibly true. I mean, if it's a, a lengthy piece and it is giving new ideas about the way that legislation might operate or the way that somebody could treat their assets for the best tax outcome, then potentially there is an original literary work there. But I agree with you that often, and lawyers are a little bit the same, as for chefs, you know, recipes are very difficult to protect in terms of copyright because they're not typically a, an original literary mm. work. But for that reason, you'll find that people possibly just don't disclose the, the juiciest bits of real, you know, the, the true secrets of how you do things. So um, that's a, sort of a commercial strategy, I think, in terms of actually the, the law rather than law. So then the we haven't talked about designs. So we've talked we've got trademarks which are names, product names, things. We should talk about it as the badge of origin. Pats for functionality, copyright for it can be source code, literary works, artistic works, artistic works of craftsmanship. And then designs is really just the form. So it sits between all of those others and is really kind of the look of something. So obviously designs is, is used heavily in the fashion industry. They can be common law rights, but they can also be registered rights. And the important piece of the current regime for designs is that you have a statement of newness and distinctiveness. So you have to be able to say, well, what's, what's new about this product that has, in terms of the design, that has not been registered before. I find that there it's a harder area to 
not hard to register a design, I, I wouldn't say, but they can be hard to enforce. And to defend. Yeah, and to defend. That's right. So they're the, they're the real areas. So if you kind of look at these four areas, patent and designs could be relevant for accountants if their clients require a patent or a design so that we can send them to the right specialist. But I think for our own practice, trademarks and copyright are probably the most relevant and copyright is very difficult to protect. So that leaves trademarks. And I would love to just dwell a little bit deeper on trademarks for accounting practices with you and look at the uh, classes. From memory, correct me wrong, I need to check my notes, but I think from memory it's class 36 and 37. And it's actually kind of tricky to pick which one is more relevant. Looking at the classes that are available for accountants and tax agents and potentially advisors, it's really class 35 and 36. And, and I can imagine that happens quite a lot when you want to register a trademark that whatever you want to trademark actually falls in two or maybe even three classes, and then it's difficult to pick the right one. But for accounting, for example, when you search on the IP website for accounting, most of the hits come up in class 35. And that also includes tax consultancy, accountants, and it always adds accountancy. But then when you go to class 36, you get tax advice again, but it has financial behind it. And I think for us at tax advisors, it's very difficult to decide whether our tax advice is for under accountancy or financial. And so the question is basically, would you think that for most accountants it's enough to just register in class 35 or would you think you should always cover whatever class could possibly fit, you should cover all the classes that just somehow are touched by what you want to trademark? What are your thoughts on this? I mean, it's possible that you can register the same trademark in a number of classes. It just changes the cost. You know, yes. I think Australia charges you a little bit more for, for each class. Yeah, I think it's the same price for each class. When you register for two classes, you double the cost. When you register for three classes, you triple the cost. Yes, I'm with you. And the law firms will charge you an, a, a fee to create the specifications for you. Um, and typically that will cover a number of classes. But the, the true, if you're doing it yourself, the true difference is just how much IP Australia is going to charge you and that's per class. So I guess the point is for something like H&R Block that only does income tax returns, I, th I think, or to the extent that that's all it does, yeah. then you probably are just looking at a straight 35, you know, because it's, it's forensic accounting, but it's that tax advice, assessment, planning, Yes. It's a, a, Taxation advice, tax advice, business advice, cost accounting, accounting, accountancy. Yeah. If you're in a broader practice where you're actually advising beyond just a tax return, then you are looking, I would think you're looking at 36 for the for more financial advice. Yes. Um, and I would have thought there is there is a thing in trademark law where um, it's called goods of the same description. So if you, for example, file accountancy in class 36 and I come along and register or try to use harder and I'm doing um, income tax, then the potential is, depending on exactly what I'm doing, the potential is that our, our use is actually in services of the same description and um, I'd probably be encroaching on your rights anyway. Trademark would still work. Yeah, so that means the answer is it should be enough to just register in class 35 or 36 because that already will probably give you protection for the other class as well. 
my, my suggestion is that you go as broad um, as you can to the extent that that fits your business. So you can lose a, a trademark registration for non-use and that includes not just not using it at all, but if you register for classes, you know, 25, which is clothes and 35 and 36, and you never actually sell any clothes, then someone could come along and challenge your validity of having the registration in class 25, for example. So you don't want to put in things that are not necessary, but you equally just want to have, have a broad enough scope of protection that if somebody does try moving on your patch, that your trademark protection will enable you to shift them out of your sandpit. That's a very good point. If you go too narrow, for example, if you say only preparation of income tax returns, of tax returns, then you run the risk that you're not protected for broader thing of, I don't know, tax effective structuring Yeah, estate planning, etc. But if you go too wide, you fundamentally increase the risk that your trademark application will be rejected because the wider you mark your turf, of course, the higher the chance that you're treading onto somebody else's turf. So it's a fine balance. Exactly right. And if you look at, there is a difference between if you go into IP Australia, you can choose either you use IP Australia's generic class description is what it's called. So it will, for example, if you just go into class 35, it will just give you a whole heap of things that you cut and paste in or you just tick that box. But you can also decide to have a more tailored version, and I think it costs $400 for you to use that. But it will enable you, for example, to carve out where you might have um, a close competitor with a similar name. You might be able to, you know, walk around their protection by um, narrowing your own, and then at least you'll still have the trademark. Uh, protection. So that, that is one way of, of coexisting, if you like, with somebody else. You can use use the specification to that extent. Um, while we're talking about trademarks, can I just make a point about business names? Because a number of accountants have said to me or, or clients have said, oh, my accountant told me I've got the business name and I don't need a trademark. That is absolutely wrong. Uh, a business name is a is something that allows you to trade, of course, and is is really a, a taxation vehicle, if you like, or an identifying vehicle. But trademarks are, are concerned with badge of origin and quality of the product or the service. Now, I can understand why that is confusing when you have business names that are the same as the product or the company names the same as the product. But if you look at the Trademarks Act and if you look at the wording of for that's required for infringement the legal test for infringement it's all about infringing a registered trademark that's used as a trademark that's used as the badge of origin not that's the the business or taxation vehicle of the entity that puts out the goods right mm -hmm. so it's quite different yes and the trademark can actually give you a door in when the business name can't Let's say you want to call your business Red Cats and somebody already has the business name for Red Cats, but they don't have the trademark. So then you just register the trademark for Red Cats. You So you call your business Red Cats Australia or something just so that you're different to the company that's already called Red Cats. You, you take the business name Red Cats Australia because they already have the business name Red Cats. But then you register the trademark of Red Cats and then you can trade as Red Cats. And there's little they can do apart from coming on the common law path, arguing that they had this trademark through a common law. But it usually gives you a very good way in. It's much stronger protection and it's broader protection. And it, remember that it interfaces with, uh, all IP interfaces with, 
the Australian consumer law. So it's very good evidence, if you like, if somebody is using the same trademark as you, it's very good evidence or it's, it's a good platform to say that people will be misled or deceived into thinking that those goods come from somewhere that they don't based on the trademark. If it's a business name, it's just not as strong. Having said that, if you were to take out the same business name as my trademark, I would be writing to you and saying, um, I don't want you to have a reputation in that name, so you must give it to me. But the trademark rights are absolutely stronger. So for anybody that is not obtaining the trademark rights, but sitting there just hoping that the business name is enough, they're not protected well enough. The difference between use of TM and R for trademarks. So for anybody that is using a trademark and they want the market to know that they're using it as a trademark, the TM is a very good indicator of that. And it's particularly important for people who might have a descriptive mark that they can't get registered straight away, but they might decide in 12 months they want to apply for a registration and they want to be able to show the examiner or IP Australia examiner, this is our evidence of use as a trademark. If you've got the little TM there, it's very clear that that's what you were attempting to do. The R is only for registered marks. So if you're not registered and you're using the R, it's actually the Trademarks Act makes, it, it prohibits that use. Um, that's actually an offence. So I want to make two points about that. First though is if you are registered in the United States, so you've got a cap and you've got your logo on there and it's got little R, and you don't have an Australian registration, but that cap is sold in Australia, no problems. It's not That's not an issue because it depends on where the R is applied, not necessarily where it is sold. And the second thing is that the prohibition in the Trademarks Act around the use of the R means that it has to be uh, prosecuted by the Australian Federal Police, and I'm sure that we can all imagine that trademark infringement is probably not the top of the list of the Australian <laughs> Federal Police. So. The likelihood that you would be prosecuted, you'd have to be doing something quite significant for them to take notice, but it is it is important to know that it's it's a, a prohibition under the Trademarks Act. Okay, so the R is for trademarks that are registered anywhere in the world. As long as you have this trademark registered anywhere in the world, you can basically put an R on it? Yes, that, that's practically yes. Okay, and then the TM just means you want to use it as a trademark. You haven't registered it yet, but you want to use it as a trademark. If you have a word that could be deemed to be generic or descriptive, or you already tried to trademark it, but you failed, then you shouldn't put the TM on it, or could you still put the TM on it? You, you can still do it, but the point is, if you then go to sue somebody for trademark infringement, you'll have to demonstrate your rights and the court will probably say that's a generic word and you don't have any trademark rights to that anyway. You know, that decision will be made at that point. Um, so there's no prohibition against using the trademark. As you've just said, it can be useful for people who want to build a reputation in a descriptive mark over time. So you can do that, but I would not be silly with it. So for trademarks, it's R and TM. For copyright, it's C. And for patent, it's... There isn't a designation. Isn't okay. You can write patent pending on things if you want to alert the market that there is a patent um, that is uh, going through the process. I see. Otherwise, you probably write the name, don't you? This is this this product is covered by patent registration one two three four five. Yeah, but uh, until that has been granted, then there's you can't really say you have any rights. So there is something to be careful with. We won't delve 
too much into it, but in all of the intellectual property uh, legislation, there is a thing called, um, we know it as unjustified threats or groundless threats. So if I write to you and say, I've got a patent and you must stop doing that, but my patent has not been granted, so I don't actually have those rights, I'm actually exposed to you suing me for making an unjustified threat. So you'll see that people don't tend to make those sorts of threats until their rights have been properly secured um, or, or they can be identified. Uh, and so that's the reason that patent pending can be used just to identify to people, hey, you know, these, these rights um, are here. And, and that's relatively important because there is also innocence defences in the, the intellectual property um, legislation, in particular for copyright. That's why it's really important for the little c and the, the name of the entity who owns the uh, copyright to be identified because if you don't identify the owner, the work can be considered an orphaned work um, so if you can't identify who it is, you can't reach out to them to ask if they can, if you can use their work, if it's an orphaned work, then your use of it, um, if it is later found to be an infringement of somebody's rights, may well be deemed to be an innocent infringement. And whilst it might be an infringement, there'll be no damages payable. So that that's also really important. Coming back to this unjustified threat um, under patent law, does that also exist under under trademark law? So, for example, if if you use a generic or descriptive term, like for example, text talks, and somebody keeps writing to you saying, "This is my trademark based on common law. You shouldn't use it." Could that person basically turn around and sue for unjustified threat? Potentially, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah, you've got it. People have got to be very careful. And it can also be that there's not a lot of judicial commentary on the unjustified threats provision or provisions across the different acts. But typically, if you don't have the rights, you shouldn't be making threats of litigation about them. But equally, you shouldn't be making threats about litigation if you don't intend to then follow through and sue somebody. So that's also something that, you know, if I'm having a conversation with a client and they say, such and such is using our trademark and we don't like it. And I'll say to them, all right, but how far are we prepared to go? If they say, I want to write a threatening letter, but I don't, I'm not, I'm never going to sue them, then there's no way that I'm going to cross the line of threatening you with litigation because that would expose the client to unjustified threats potentially, depending on the scenario. So you do have to, to keep that in mind straight away. There was one last thing I wanted to talk about in terms of intellectual property, especially if accountants are looking at due diligence of their clients, if they're buying a business or not, it's really important to get the written assignments of the rights because a patent cannot be assigned. It cannot be sold unless there is a written assignment. If you don't have that, you possibly don't own anything. And it's a bit, there's something else to consider along the same lines is that if you're buying a business that's got a lot of patent applications that have not been granted, it might not be worth the money that you're paying for. You've really got to have a look at that. And you've got to also make sure that you provide in the sale price or whatever other mechanisms in that agreement uh, for who's going to pay to get the rights through to grant. A lot of people just say, I oh, will buy that. And then they realise that they're up for another $100,000 or whatever to get the patent through to registration. And that perhaps should have been renegotiated in the sale of the business. So understanding where, where their rights have actually vested is, is an important thing for anybody doing due diligence of intellectual property assets. That basically means if you buy a business, 
look at their brand names, look at their trademarks, look at any intellectual property that has been registered as a patent or as a design to make sure that those rights are correctly transferred to you so that you get what you paid for. <laughs> yes. Involve an IP lawyer to make sure that you, it's not, you know, that your, your deal is worth the paper it's written on. Uh, I can't say that strongly enough. Yes. That was our quick traverse of the what I call the four pillars of intellectual property being the legislative provisions that arise from the Copyright Act, Patents Act, Designs Act and the Trademarks Act. There are four versions and then always remember your confidential information. Welcome back. So for your practice, if you don't have a trademark yet, get one and then your brand is a lot more protected. It is easy. You can do it yourself and it just costs a few hundred dollars. Just go to the IPU Australia website and then go for class 35 if you do more accounting and tax and class 36 if you do more financial advice. But check all this on the IPU Australia website. In the next episode, episode 288, Melissa McGrath will talk about the taxation of intellectual property. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to Class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.